beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014 being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, back with you again today. I'm a UCC pastor in the place here currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. I'm the faith coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally, and this podcast is a project of SURGE faith and SURGE action, and is particularly designed for white people, white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you and especially from folks of color about how we're doing. The word is resistance. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. That's a line from Mary Oliver's poem, Wild Geese, a poem that has saved my life and maybe yours. I tend to focus on other parts of the poem, the part about not having to be good, the part about just letting the soft animal of my body love what it loves, the part about the wild geese announcing my place in things. But today I'm thinking about despair. Tell me about despair yours, and I will tell you mine. There is enough these days to make us despair. I will spare you a litany because you can make your own, the things happening, weighing down our hearts to the point of overwhelm, to the point of wondering if we'll actually survive this, if actually anything can be done, if we'll actually ever all be free. I confess I struggle with this these days. It feels like a constant state of heartache for us, for the earth, for the earth's creatures. I feel it in my body. Do you? There's enough these days to make us despair. I don't know if social media makes it worse or if it actually is worse than it's ever been, but also... I read Ecclesiastes this week and was reminded, as the teacher says, there is nothing new under the sun. And this little book about despair actually helped me feel better. Here's the verses stitched together for Sunday's lectionary. I'm going to focus on a broader overview of Ecclesiastes for this podcast, but here's a starting place for us. Take some good, deep breaths and find the earth underneath you as you listen. 
Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I, the teacher, when king over Israel and Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that it has done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun, and see all is vanity and a chasing after wind. I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish, yet they will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned and gave up my heart to despair. So I turned and gave up my heart to despair concerning all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What do mortals get from all the toil and strain with which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain, and their work is a vexation. Even at night their minds do not rest. This also is vanity. pretty well-known bit of Ecclesiastes, along with there's nothing new under the sun, and for everything there's a season. Turn, turn, turn. Sorry for the earworm. If I had to endure it, so do you. And of course, eat, drink, and be merry, which is actually Jesus paraphrasing Ecclesiastes in this week's gospel reading from Luke. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We know the famous bits, but how well do we know the whole book? The lectionary editors, <clears throat> excuse me, the lectionary editors don't do us a whole lot of favors here, chopping up disjointed bits of the first two chapters, and then not ever engaging Ecclesiastes again in the three-year lectionary cycle, except to offer us, for everything there's a season, at Christmas. That's unfortunate, because I think the teacher has something to teach us for these times we're living through. All is vanity. Many years ago at a gathering in Central America, I had the privilege of hearing the great Mexican feminist, liberationist, theologian, and biblical scholar, Dr. Elsa Thomas, talk about Ecclesiastes. I clearly remember her talking about how translating the Hebrew word hebel as vanity, or vanidades in Spanish, how translating it as vanity is not nearly strong enough to convey the sense of utter, absurd, despairing frustration that the teacher is expressing. A better translation in Spanish, she said, would be porqueria. 
The gathered folks chuckled because porcaria comes this close to being a cuss word in Spanish, describing anything from literal garbage to garbage government policies. Esta es una porquería. This is some trash, a gross mess. This is some crap, some bullshit right here. This is some bullshit, says the teacher. A load of crap. I've seen what happens under the sun, and it's all bullshit. That reads a little differently, doesn't it? The point Thomas was making, and which she would go on to make in her commentary on Ecclesiastes called When Horizons Close, is that what the teacher is wrestling with is not some existential philosophical idea about time and seasons, but with deeply felt despair over the very real oppressive material conditions in which they were living under the oppressive thumb of yet another empire. Vanity of vanities does not get at the aching empty sense that there is no way out. Unlike prophetic and apocalyptic texts, which perceive beyond the present into the future, a future that is free and just, where empires have crumbled and the wicked have been held accountable, the teacher in Ecclesiastes portrays a present in which the horizons have closed. There is no beyond, no possibility of anything new, of any future with hope. There is only here and now, over and over, and it's all bullshit. Even the teacher, who describes themselves as a king, with all the wealth and wisdom and knowledge and ease they could want, that's part of what's cut out from the lectionary text, even they understand how terrible everything is. A quick aside, the narrator of Ecclesiastes describes himself as king and a son, but teacher in the Hebrew, koheleth, is rendered in the feminine. So I'm opting for a gender-neutral pronoun, because isn't that curious? Kohelet, the teacher, whoever they may have been, puts on the persona of an ancient king, King Solomon, to describe their current reality with the authority of their tradition's beloved ancestor. That reality is of the people of Israel being crushed under yet another imperial boot, We're beyond Babylon now, beyond the exile, with the people returned to their homeland and rebuilding from ruin. We are now in that future described by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others, visions we still read about during Advent, of lions laying down with lambs, and justice and peace kissing, and a new heaven and a new earth where no one shall labor in vain. That's Isaiah 65, 22 and 23. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands, and no one shall labor in vain. Vanity, Koheleth declares. Bullshit. What do mortals get from all the toil and strain with which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain, and their work is a vexation. Even at night their minds do not rest. This is also vanity. Kohelet is living in that future that is supposed to be new, supposed to be better, and yet it is not. There is nothing new under the sun. The time in which the teacher is teaching is still a time of empires, somewhere when the, when the Egyptian and Persian empires were shifting into the Ptolemaic Hellenistic era. 
Thomas describes this period as one in which imperial rulers put into place and even streamlined an oppressive administrative bureaucracy that controlled finance, commerce, and agriculture, and used the military with new tactics to control the labor force and to put down resistance to the new regime. All of this made the empire and its leaders incredibly wealthy, and their tactics were considered new for the region, particularly how they centralized the administration of power into one location, the use of new military tactics for repression, and having a monopoly on coinage across the empire. To borrow and perhaps pervert Isaiah's line, it, is, it supposedly was a new heavens and a new earth, a new empire for a new day. But Kohelet observes and analyzes and decides there is nothing new under the sun. All is vanity and a chasing after the wind. Kohelet teaches those assembled, which also includes us now, what they have learned about this new empire and why they despair. Under empire, workers are exploited. The word used here, toil, is used throughout the Hebrew Bible to describe labor that is enslaved or otherwise exploited. So workers are exploited, and the fruits of their labor go to someone else. They don't even get to enjoy what they build or plant or harvest. Under empire, courts are not places of justice. Those who are righteous are treated with injustice, and the wicked are never held accountable for their harm. Under empire, the oppressed weep with tears while oppressors consolidate their power. Young movement leaders may achieve some justice, but then they are forgotten or co-opted by the rulers. Under empire, the poor are violated, and the powerful hoard their wealth and surveil the people. Even the good things the people may have are not able to be enjoyed by them, but are enjoyed by strangers. Under empire, even the rhythms of the earth are out of whack. The sun seems to rush, the winds blow from the wrong directions, the streams run in confusion. Under empire... There is no justice, and there is no freedom. It's vanity and a chasing after wind. New empire, same old bullshit. This is the source of Kohelet's despair, that all of this is happening, and they cannot perceive a future beyond the suffering they live in now. And they're not wrong. If you listen to Kohelet's teaching, their political education workshop on the oppression of the empire, and thought, huh, that's not much different than the current empire, you have made precisely their point. I mean, I paraphrase the text slightly, but not really. It's all there, 2,250 years later, give or take, and it's the same bullshit. There is no mention of the liberating from Exodus God, 
No reference to salvific and revolutionary prophetic or apocalyptic visions. The horizons of the future are closed. The sun rises, the sun sets, and there is nothing new under the sun, just the same old oppressive bullshit. It is as if Kohelet is saying, Egypt becomes Assyria, becomes Babylon, becomes Persia, becomes Ptolemy, which, by the way, becomes Rome, taking the infrastructure of the Hellenists and cranking it up to even more violent ends. And now ask yourself, why so many U.S. government buildings and founding ideas are rooted in Greco-Roman architecture and philosophy? And that is the center of Kohelet's despair, that an oppressed people are crushed by one empire after the other and they cannot discern an end to it. They are not wrong. And maybe, they allow, God handles it all in the end, but in the meantime, that actually feels pretty insufficient. The only thing Kohelet knows how to do, the only thing that might make this situation even somewhat endurable, is to get what pleasure one can from one's labor, from eating and drinking, from the solidarity of community, and with one's beloveds. Their strategy is not one of revolution or rebellion, though this was also happening all along throughout all the histories of all these empires, including the one Kohalet is living through. Their strategy is not one that depends on the possibility of future change, because for Kohalet, what has actually changed from one future to the next? Eat, drink, flame find pleasure in your toil, is a strategy for enduring the present moment, for finding some semblance of joy, of warmth on a cold night in the midst of oppression. It is a strategy for enduring despair. Kohelet also teaches that this strategy is not about or even for the rich who already have plenty to eat and drink and are partying away while they do so much harm. In fact, I think this is what Jesus is getting at with his parable in Luke 12 that goes with this week's Ecclesiastes reading. In that parable, a rich man has so much wealth, he has to build even bigger storehouses to hold it all, all his grain and his goods. The only way to get that much wealth is by exploitation and oppression. He's the one Kohelet is talking about who gets all the benefits of the worker's toil. And now the rich man hoards his immense wealth and sits back and says, Now I can eat, drink, and be merry. And then God calls him a fool. That is not what or who Kohelet's teaching is for. Kohelet's strategy, reinforced by Jesus, is one that is rooted first in a very clear analysis of their current reality, and the recognition that that reality is bullshit and that they may not experience change, transformative revolutionary change in their lifetime, if ever. The best thing we can do, Kohelet teaches, is to try to find some pleasure right now while we're alive. At least we have that.
the things I love about the Bible is that there is not one solo homogenous voice having one opinion and perspective about things. Rather, it's a collection of a community's wrestlings and rejoicings, questions and attempts at answers. Which means that Koholet's despair is not the only response we have to the oppression the Jewish people lived under in ancient times. In the Protestant Bible, Ecclesiastes is the next to last book right before all the prophets with the wild, ecstatic, anguished, and sometimes trippy futurisms. It's important to have both. And even Koholet recognizes that while the prophetic it-will-get-better vision is insufficient as a full response to oppression, so is their own strategy of eat, drink, and be merry. It's the best they can come up with, and it's still chasing after wind. We need both. We need the strategies for how to endure the present moment and the visions of a different future. That said, it's tempting to dismiss Kohelet. No one wants despair, but we all want those trippy future visions. Kohelet the teacher has something important to teach us, though. And part of that teaching is to take seriously the violent oppression in which we live and just how deep those roots go. The Ptolemies were building off the exploitative infrastructure of previous empires just like the Romans would do just a couple of hundred years later. The despair of this is not new is the antidote to thinking that our current problem in the U.S. is only Trump and not the entire white supremacist structure of this country from its founding. It's the antidote to claims that separating children from families is not who we are as a country, when separating children from families is a tactic this country has used from its founding, from indigenous genocide to selling enslaved children to Indian boarding schools to putting poor white kids in foster care for being high risk simply for being poor. When we, and by we I particularly mean white folks who are middle and upper class, who might want to hold on to a more innocent view of our country because it doesn't ask as much of us, when we hear folks of color in particular trying to tell us that this this violence is who this country has always been, they are being Kohelet for us, our teacher. This is the depth of what we are facing, they are telling us, that will not be fixed by empire's power-changing hands, that will not be fixed by voting one person out of office, though let's definitely do that too. 1492, 1620, 1776, 1838, 1890, 1919, 1968, 2019, it's all the same bullshit. We need deep structural changes that address the roots of this empire. Because Kohalat is not wrong. There is nothing new under the sun. Like Kohelet, our despair teaches us that something is desperately wrong. 
as part of your call to action today, I want you to stay with that despair, whatever it looks like for you. Maybe journal about it or invite a friend for coffee and talk about it. Because I don't think we'll find our way to wholeness without acknowledging, without feeling deeply our despair. The other action I have for you is rooted in Kohelet's strategy to eat, drink, and be merry in community. Let me tell you a story about that. We're new here in Buffalo, you know, only four months here. And last week we were invited to supper with a group of amazing local activists doing great work. Folks of color, queer folks, children. We mingled in the garden and then gathered around one long table to eat delicious food cooked with love. We had garden fresh pesto and herb chicken and fresh whipped cream and warm chocolate chip cookies and even a bottle of local Kentucky whiskey. As we settled in to eat, one of the hosts offered a prompt question for us and we went around the table sharing our responses for the rest of the meal. The two-part question was, what is your vision for the future and what do you need for us to get there? Each person shared mosaic pieces of their visions while the rest of us nodded and snapped and awed and sometimes even cried. The kids drew pictures and sang songs. People shared about abundance and rest and healing and care and laughter and pleasure and food and accountability and waterfalls and remembering and ancestors. We all know how hard this work is and the challenge ahead of us. But for that evening, right then, in the midst of all the bullshit that we are currently living, we ate and drank and found a solidarity of pleasure together. And that's how I knew we would be okay here in this new place. So that's my other call to action for you. Find your people, have a meal together, and ask that question. What is your vision for the future and what do you need for us to get there? As Elsa Thomas notes, finding ways of living an affirming rhythm of life in opposition to the rhythm of a society that has no interest in human beings is in itself a form of resistance. And the teacher says, two are better than one, for if they fall, one will lift up the other. Thanks as always for joining me from wherever you are on this good earth. Let us know how your action goes. Love to hear from you by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages. Next week, Margaret Ernst will be back with a resistance word for us for August 11th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. And be sure to give us a like or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. Finally, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor this week, Matt Reno. 
Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until that next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Yeah.